Welcome to Inside Tech with Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm Holly Sargent, a solicitor in our projects practice and the Digital Law Group. In today's episode, we'll be talking about ethical issues in the context of law and emerging technology. I'm joined by three of my colleagues in the Digital Law Group, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves. My name is Susanna Wilkinson. I'm the Digital Law Lead for Australia. Um, I'm a practicing solicitor in the projects team at Herbert Smith Freehills, um, and I'm joined by Ari Garside. Ari, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm also one of the digital law leads at Herbert Smith Freehills, and prior to that, I worked in the dispute resolution team here, and um, have also taken some time out to go to the University of Oxford and do an MBA, which is where a lot of my interest in that feedback loop or intersection between law and technology comes from, but we're going to get into that a bit later. Uh, I'm Anna Jaffe. I'm a senior associate in our technology, media and telecommunications team in Melbourne, also a member of the digital law group. Uh, and like Ari, I spent a lot of time thinking about some of these issues. My, I have a Master of Laws in um, Law, Science and Technology. The first question I'd like to start with today is what exactly does ethics mean to you? So if I just kick us off, I have been thinking a lot about what this what this means because ethics has been used in so many conversations in the moment, especially about emerging technology. It's appearing constantly in conversations of artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms and other automated decision-making systems. But the way that I think about the current uses is that there is, first of all, often an overlap between the use of the word ethics where people may in fact just mean questions in relation to law, um, whether something is lawful or unlawful. So, for example, some bias is not necessarily unlawful if there's, you know, certain biases in certain systems and perhaps statistical um, analysis, but there is many cases where bias actually produces a discriminatory output which would be unlawful in the current situation. So, of course, that's a question of context, but there is often a miscommunication between the use of the word ethics and just questions of law. Secondly, as lawyers and for the lawyers in the room, it's very interesting to consider ethics, which we often do as a subject at university in our continuing you know, ethics point, but they're actually legal professional obligations, which again are just another form of law. It's another codified um, rules-based system that we all um, given oath to uphold. The final one is what ethics really means to me, which is um, moral philosophy, which is often another term used for ethics. And it's, uh, to me, it's a a way of reasoning for the grey area between the spaces in the law and the current structures that exist there. And it's not entirely founded on the rules-based system that we have. I think um, that for me, it's probably something along the lines of what Holly said um, as her her last limb of, of, of the definition of the understanding. It's really about um, how we fill the gaps between what we can do and what we should do. Um, and so it, there is sort of a, a moral element to it. There's an element of, of fairness and of equity. Um, and that's probably where I approach it. But I do also see a lot of um, analyses that approach ethics from the framework of just looking at rules, models, frameworks, which is kind of a step removed from ethics at its core. Is that to help the uh, help guide behaviours and decision making in light of ethical standards? So we codify those standards and make it easier for people to have um, 
guidance on, well, on the decision making. That's yeah. a really good question, but can I just clarify? Like, for example, you just used the term ethical standards there, mm-hmm. and as Holly pointed out, do you mean it in the sense of do people need these frameworks to assist them with complying with the law or to assist them with going above and beyond the law perhaps because of ethical standards at large in our society? Like we know a lot of corporates now are expanding their horizon of what is taken into account to include these kind of issues of social responsibility or social licence to operate. And maybe that's what's captured in the sense of needing ethical standards or frameworks is it's about both complying with the law but doing so in a way that maybe goes even beyond those requirements. Yeah, so you have, I suppose, the objective standards of law, which can be ascertainable and identifiable, and then more of subjective elements of ethics, which goes to the grey area, Holly, you were talking about. Mm. Is there also an element of we use ethics to formulate laws at the outset and then also to apply those laws? Mm. Because I think there's also grey area in the law, right, because you can comply with the law technically but not really be in compliance with the spirit of the law or perhaps the ethical standards that are accepted in the modern day in society. So, But that goes beyond the law. But my point was more even in how you apply or interpret the law, there's a grey area, and particularly for lawyers, that's where your ethical obligations and judgment comes in. So picking up on that point of, of ethics and the law in the modern day and age, we're hearing a lot at the moment about ethics in the context of emerging technology. So ideas like ethical AI. Um, how? Wh- why is this more important today? Why are we putting more of an emphasis on ethics? I think from, from my perspective, it's, it's a little bit about the pace and the convergence of technological change. And what we mean by that is that um, the changes that we're seeing in technologies, in new and emerging technologies, are um, moving so much faster than they used to. And I think um, we're starting to see a real generalised sense of worry that um, the law and the existing rules that we have for how we respond to to the pace of change, and particularly to the pace of technological change, um, perhaps that's not enough. And so when we think about it, maybe 10 years ago we started to see um, large enterprise adoption of cloud computing. And what cloud computing did was it allowed um, everyone really, not just enterprise, to um, suddenly obtain all of this computing power in a manner that was flexible, it was scalable, and most importantly it was cheap. And so what that enabled is that it started to enable the vast collection data because you had somewhere to store it and what that now enables in the processing of that data is us being able to apply new technologies like AI, like automation, robotics, all of these things that we can do with this data and that are driven by data and, and that is that is what we've seen and it's what a lot of recent um, actions taken in the area of regulation of technology have really revealed which is um, that Data is is not just value, but in a sense, it's also power. Um, We're seeing the consolidation of um, the technology industry in a way where uh, the entities with the most data um, are far more powerful and far more valuable than I think we ever expected them to be. 
in, in my experience, there's sort of two categories of people. There are those who wholeheartedly embrace emerging technologies and get very excited and passionate about the opportunities. And there are those who are, say, safe to say, a little bit sceptical, risk-adverse, and who are frightened by some of the applications and the implications of these emerging technologies. So what are the risks that we're worried about if we're talking about ethical issues in the in emerging technology? What are we worried about? Can we discuss some of the risks of these emerging technologies? So I think it's really interesting because you raise an excellent point, is that it's the risks that are so much of a concern to us because if we think about it, none of us are worried about the application of the piece of software that runs the camera in our iPhones. We're not concerned about that because that doesn't have a particular impact on our lives. We're not concerned about that actually harming personally or having more significant impact. But we do get concerned where these um, systems, um, especially where they become automated systems, have a really personal effect on people's lives. And we've seen that arise in so many situations where it often turns out people are quite shocked and quite angry at that the idea that they were ever going to use an automated system for that in the first place Compass, based out of the United States, is a perfect example. Many people don't even know that software like Compass, which is um, using particular data points for a number of different preventative policing and also criminal sentencing, but having that information used in an automated decision-making manner in relation to someone's bail application or parole application to many people would be outrageous. Similarly, something like in Australia, the robo-debt scandal that arose with Centrelink, that's having a really personal effect on a person in their day-to-day life. And it's, I think, raises a big issue because we're so used to a system that holds humans accountable that in the context of these new systems being used in a way where we don't have the same accountability, explainability or transparency in the decisions as what you would sort of not necessarily always but often in the past you would have had a human or a system or a hierarchy or a structure that you were accountable for those decisions, especially having such personal consequences for people's lives. It's interesting, right, because it's those structures that hold people accountable are almost entirely based in our legal frameworks and it seems to me that where people are most put off or most upset are situations where like your example of um, using um, machines to assist in decision making for sentencing or to assist in decision making by the administration um, for Centrelink, something that is so legally regulated should suddenly have machines performing or assisting part of the process. And actually I think what the nub of it is, is that our legal structures have only ever been designed for human actors yes. and they've not, we've not yet quite figured out how to capture and engage with systems and processes where it's not humans or not only humans enlivening them, but it's also machines or systems that have been, that are no longer passive. They are active even without human Um, supervision or input sometimes. I I think the other thing about it um, is if we come back to our legal system, for example, and all of those 
um, elements that you mentioned, Holly, the fact that um, we want things, we want people to be held accountable. We want accountability in our systems. We want explainability. We want to understand how they work. All of those things are designed to build trust in that system. Um, and so when we when we talk about our legal system and the way that we've built it and the way that it operates, um, particularly in Australia, it's all things that are designed to make people trust and importantly buy into that system. So the reason why our legal frameworks work is because we trust them. And um, because we all it's, it's, we it's, follow them. It's like the economy, stupid. It's because yeah. we all we all agree those are the laws and we all live in the same country and if everyone suddenly stopped believing the laws were applicable, it would be very hard for the state to enforce it against everyone all at once. They are they are laws are just a construct at the end of the day, but they have they have sway because of the yeah. uniform adoption of that construct. And I think what, what we're what we're missing in these new technologies, because they have risen so fast, um, is that element of trust, and perhaps it's due to lack of understanding, perhaps it's due to lack of accountability, whether actual or perceived. Um, perhaps it's because we, we can't explain them as well as we can a human, um, you know, because we have designed all of our systems for humans. Mm, and it's interesting, right, because you can't really explain a human or what's gone on inside a human brain. And we've seen, we've all heard about the studies about, you know, say a judge's decision making will be different after lunch as opposed to when they have an empty stomach. Um, the human body and brain interaction is such a, it is still such um, a complex system that to call it explainable or understandable is itself something of a fiction, but it's a fiction that we're all comfortable with because it's been that way for as long as we've existed. You make a very interesting point, though, because if you're talking about the decision-making process, if we have trust in a system, you trust a human to make a decision because the human has been through a process of appointments, um, external validation, they've been assessed by other humans, and although we don't understand the black box of the influences on their decision-making... We trust the system that has appointed them to get to a certain place and there might be remedy or recourse <clears throat> if we disagree with their decision is the issue that with technology we are not at a position yet where we've implemented the process and the structure to assess whether or not that technology has progressed through the same ranks as, say, a decision-maker in a policy setting or a judge in a court setting. Mm. So understanding where that technology fits in and how we can assess it. And I think the, there's also maybe an element of the concept of reversion to the norm where across a wide spectrum of humans, there are many humans involved in many different decision-making roles. Um, while the differences between them might vary, there is kind of a mean norm, whereas the problem with say, implementing a self-driving car system that makes decisions on the road that can seriously impact people is there's one system. The flaws in it will end up being universally applicable rather than, say, one human driver with their particular judgment and foibles and across the, the, um, yeah, the entirety goes, of the population that might even out. And that goes to Anna's point about scale and the impact of each individual component of technology for a broad range of applications. Yeah, and I think the other point I was going to add, Susanna, is, is that 
it's not necessarily that um, those new systems don't have that element of trust. It's that they haven't established it yet. Mm. Um, we, we, because perhaps we don't have the tools that we need to grasp it. And I think when we, when we talk about perhaps we don't have the tools to understand it, I think that is bringing us back to the question that you asked so long ago, why we're turning to ethics. There's been a lot of discussion recently about the need for regulation of certain emerging tech, and this comes back to the conversation we were having before about the objective and the subjective. Do we need to put some objective parameters around these emerging technologies? I'm going to give a really loyally answer. It depends. Excellent. <laughs> I think, yes, I think uh, part of the biggest problem with regulation is the fact that a lot of these newer technologies are by their nature global. Like you look at big, um, or some of the big global technology companies like Facebook or Google and their influence is global and the application of their policies across many different jurisdictions is really tricky because different jurisdictions have different laws and different um, structures in their society that mean that all different, a different hodgepodge of regulation across different territories and states and nations, but that applies to a global system or algorithm or platform. Do we talk more though about, if you're talking about a global platform, um, it's a global platform, but the impact of that platform is unique to the individual and the individual is located in a jurisdiction. So if you have a discriminatory outcome of the application of technology, the discrimination manifests itself on the individual level in a particular jurisdiction. So is it right that we rely on the legal principles that already apply in that jurisdiction to give the individual protection? I mean, I think if we come back to... Ari's answer and it depends. I think that's discrimination and the law of discrimination is one example where we could easily argue that the existing frameworks are sufficient because they, you know, when they're determined by reference to outcomes, whether those outcomes are generated by a machine or by a human, perhaps the law is sufficient. Um, you know, of course, you, you have your sort of elements of um, well, who is at fault if it's generated by a machine, but you could argue that the law itself remains applicable. I think there are other circumstances where um, we've seen recently regulation being specifically targeted at these technologies um, or perhaps introduced in haste, um, you know, while trying to target them in a specific area where it's less effective. Could you give a couple of examples? Absolutely. So um, in Australia... Uh, earlier this year, we passed um, an amendment to the Criminal Code, um, and the it was the Enhancing Online Safety Act. Um, it was colloquially referred to as the social media laws, and it was a response to the Christchurch terrorist attacks. Um, and those laws were passed. What was sorry, just for those who might not be aware of the background of it, is what was it about the Christchurch attacks that it was that they were live streamed, um, and the video of the live streaming. Um, also proliferated across social media uh, immediately after and in the days and in the weeks and since then um, that, that video has continued to be available 
um, less so in Australia, um, which is an interesting point to note that, that the laws have been effective, but they were passed within a day. Um, and there was a lot of angst about those because um, the, the manner in which they required implementation, um, what they require is, is um, pretty swift takedown of material. Um, and there was a real question mark as to whether um, the technology providers who are the subject of these laws could comply in time or could comply without having to build um, very sophisticated systems and models to do that. And so what we're looking at with that law is a very precisely targeted law that was passed very quickly that may have unintended consequences. And what you mentioned that it's been effective in Australia in terms of actually achieving um, at least what it was initially a response to in keeping the videos of the attack down inside the Australian jurisdiction, but what might be some of the unintended consequences people are worried about? So if we're thinking about the industry response, sort of talking about in order to um, effectively implement or comply with the Act, um, needing to implement an entirely new system and a very sophisticated system, you could see a scenario where that could um, entrench dominant market players because new market entrants um, who are you know, startups who don't necessarily have the budget may not be able to invest the resources to be able to respond to those notices. Which is a really interesting point, right? That's a really good example of one of the really big changes that we're seeing in this convergence of new technologies and access to them is the fact that um, information sharing, there are now so many channels for it through to the public that something like journalism, which has its own regulations and indeed its own set of ethical guidelines and was... For a long time, the main channel through which people got their news or their content or their information is no longer the only channel. And now you have citizens, you have individuals doing it who are not subject to the same frameworks or structures, which makes sense because individuals are just individuals. They don't have the resources or the structures around them that journalists or news publishers do. But it also means that we now have this gap where there were reasons originally for regulating the people providing, the people able to use those channels to provide the public with information and they had a certain responsibility. Yeah, I think also on that point of regulation is um, it's interesting to look at again the scale question and is it easier to affect change by targeting um, the platform provider as opposed to leaving the onus of um, bringing a claim to the individual who may be experiencing the discrimination, whether that's through platform or, or the use of AI. So that's a shifting of the burden of compliance and goes to your point, Anna, around certain newer entrants to the market may not be able to compete with the bigger players. Um, to me, there's a question around who is best um, placed to fight that fight. As technology converges, so must we. <laughs> we just got to, our podcast title. To be on the <laughs> yeah. I just, so Ari, Holly, Anna, thank you all so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, some really interesting issues. Look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Fantastic Thanks to be so here. Much. In 
Inside Tech is a podcast by Herbert Smith Freehills, providing business leaders with insights on the advancements in technology that are transforming business models, the workforce and the global economy. Tune in for episodes on digital transformation, cybersecurity, data, technology and the ensuing regulatory changes. For more of our latest thinking, please visit our Inside Tech Hub on www.hsf.com.